Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is true that our Lord Jesus is the champion of heaven. And he is as our David who conquered the great Goliath of our sin. And for that we're grateful. So we pray even now that you would enable us to hear that, to receive it, and to be blessed by it. So that you may be glorified and our lives reflect all that you've done in us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 8. I want to read uh, verses 6 through 13. Hebrews in chapter 8, please. Hebrews 8 and verse 6, hear the word of God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now I want to draw our attention this morning to verse 12. And it reads, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And I want to ask the question, uh, what really does that mean? that God will remember our sins no more. And I don't ask that, as you know, from an academic pursuit, so that we can simply have the right answer to that question. But I want to ask that question so in answering it, we can, uh, we can realize what it really means in the context of our own lives. How does that affect us? How does it affect who I am and the way that I live to know that God will remember my sins no more. Now it seems clear that that little expression, God remembers our sins no more, refers to his forgiving our sins. If you just turn over a page to chapter 10, um, in verse 16, we, we kind of see the book end to this passage. Sometimes when you read through the scriptures, you find that something begins a section and it ends it as well. And this little uh, uh, quotation from the prophet Jeremiah that the author of Hebrews uses in Chapter 8 appears in part uh, at the end of chapter 10 again, saying, okay, I've talked about this now. Verse 16 of chapter 10 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he kind of skips down because he has something else in mind. And then he says, I will remember their sins no more. I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then verse 18 explains it. He says, For where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. 
that is when the expression is made that he will remember our sins no more, it means he'll forgive those sins. That is, he'll free us from the debt of those sins. He'll cancel, if you will, the punishment of those sins. He remembers them uh, no more. And, and you see, sin really is our problem uh, with God. And, and it's a very significant problem because it means that when we have this kind of a problem with God, it affects everything in the context of our lives because God sets the standards for everything. And so when we're out of sorts with Him because of sin, if there's a separation or a breach between us and Him because of sin, it affects everything in the context of our lives. For instance, if you're a student, the one person you want not to have a problem with is your professor because that will affect everything in that area of your life. If you're a child, the, the one or two at least people that you do not want to have a problem with is your parents because they set the standards for that area of your life, that family life while you're growing up. If, if you're an employee, the one person you don't want to have a problem with is your boss. If you're a soldier, the one person you don't want to have a problem with is your commanding officer. If you're an athlete, the one person you don't want to have a problem with is your coach. Because you see, when there's a problem with that person who's a defining person in your life, that is, the very one who sets the standards for you uh, in your life, uh, then it affects, it affects everything. And since God is the sovereign one, and since he's the one who sets the standards for life, when there's a breach in that relationship, when there's a separation between us and him, it affects everything. And every time there's a breach in a relationship, every time there's a, a problem with someone with, who, with whom we have a defining relationship, uh, then there are consequences when that breach occurs. It, it just simply happens. You see, when we talk about sin, we're, we're talking about uh, something um, that we're doing wrong. I mean, when you think of the word sin, you go, well, somebody's done something wrong. Well, that means there must have been something right to have done that you didn't do. And again, if that's in the context of someone who's defining the standards, there's, there's consequences to that. If you're a child and your parents say, come home at 11, and you come home at 3 in the morning, well, that's a problem. There was a right, and it was defined by your parents, who are the definers of right in the context of a child's life, and now you've offended that standard. And there's a consequence to that. There's a, there's a problem in that relationship. And you can always tell the problem because the child comes in quietly. You see, there's no problem. Children would never come in quietly. They would come in boldly, but they, they don't. And I must confess, in the lives of my own children, I probably offended my parents' curfews more than they might, so I'm grateful for that. So I understand the quietness of coming in mostly from being the sneaker, or not the sneaky. But anyway... But there's a problem there. And, and what happens in the midst of that relationship is the consequence comes. Uh, and, and you can feel the, the breach in the relationship. All that's to come from that relationship between parent and child, feelings of security and affirmation and all of that, seem to be gone for the moment. Rather than feeling warmth as you enter, you feel a certain sense of coldness and fear. See? And so what was supposed to be true of that relationship between parent and child seems to be 
at a stand still at the moment. There seems to be a breach in that. If you're, if you're a worker and your boss has come into work on Tuesday and you don't and you come in on Wednesday, there's a problem. And you can sense that problem in the midst of that relationship and, and what's supposed to be true in that worker-boss uh, relationship of economic security and affirmation for your work isn't there all of a sudden and you may find the consequence, the penalty is, is, is a loss of promotion or a dock in pay or perhaps you even lose your job. And that separation you see then becomes more more permanent in that sense. If you're a baseball player and the sign's on for a hit and run and you take the pitch, there's a problem between you and your coach. And you may lose playing time, you see. Because that relationship that's to exist between the two of you has a breach in it. All of a sudden, if you're, if you're a soldier and you go against the orders of a, your commanding officer, there's a problem and there's a breach in that relationship. And you may lose a promotion. You may lose that affirmation. You may lose that protection that's to come from your commanding officer that's normally, normally there. Uh, if you're a student... Uh, and you turn in a paper late, you're Dr. Grade, and all those kinds of things. Why? Because the, the relationship has consequences when you violate the standards of the standard maker. And it affects everything in relationship there. When we offend God, and there's a breach in the relationship between He and us, what we lose is life. Because you see, what God brings to us in relationship to him is life. And he's the standard maker for all of life. And he says, if you want to be in relationship with me, if you want to receive life from me, then here's what that means. And you see, all of God's standards are righteous. All of God's standards are right. When God says you're to have no other gods before me, that's reasonable. Now, if I said to you, you shouldn't worship anyone but me, that would be unreasonable. Because I'm not worthy of worship. But when God says you're to have no other gods before me, that's perfectly reasonable. And if we have other gods before him, that is, if we look to others to, to direct our lives, if we look to others to worship, if we look to others to dictate how we're to live our lives, that's offensive to God because he's the standard maker, as well he should be, because he's... Because he's God. And everything that he thinks and everything that he does is right. When God says, you shouldn't covet. That is, you shouldn't desire to have what others have and whine about it because you don't have it. And would rather you have it than they have it. He's right. And when we covet, you see, we're dishonoring him. We're saying, God, the provision that you've made for us just isn't adequate. It isn't right. It isn't good. And I want what they have. In fact, I deserve it more than they. I should have it and not them. And that offends God. And he says, you shouldn't do that. When God says you shouldn't commit adultery, uh, he's right. Because he's the standard maker. He's the one who defines for us what sexual morality is. So he's right. And when we go against that, you see, we offend him. And in that offense, ultimately, is death. And you know the story. I mean, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, that God is the standard maker and he makes the standard. And he puts in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which stands, signifies the very fact that God is the one who defines good and evil. And, and, and he says to Adam and Eve, therefore, that isn't your tree. 
So it's my tree. I get to define what's good and evil. You don't. But Satan comes to test them and to tempt them. And the temptation is exactly, is exactly right in the sense that he says, if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. You won't be God, but you'll be acting like God as the one who sets the standard. The one who defines good and evil. And what do they do? They eat. And in so eating, they offend God. They say, you're not the standard maker. We are. And what is the curse then? What is the consequence then? It's death. The very seeds of physical death enter their body. And they and we eventually die. That's a visible manifestation of the consequence of sin. It's a visible manifestation of the consequence of a breach between us and God. But it's more serious even than that. Because it, it leads to spiritual death as well. That is, this separation leads to a situation where there's no access to God, no contact with God, no blessing from God. In fact, it's even worse than that. Because God is just in everything, and he can't overlook such offenses because that would be to deny his very character of justice, then that death is a manifestation of his wrath, of his punishment, of his justice against us. So the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians in chapter 2 is like this in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, when there's a breach between us and God, it's way more serious than a breach between you and your boss. I suppose at worst you could lose your job. This, you're condemned. It's much worse between a student between a student and a professor. There you may just lose course credit, but here you lose life. You see, the consequences are eternal, and the consequences are devastating. And you say, well, why doesn't God just forgive those sins? I mean, we do. I mean, someone sins against you, and there are times that uh, you may require. Uh, some sort of payment to restore you to where you were before that sin is, is not remembered anymore. Uh, it may be that uh, there's some justice that needs to be done. But, but you know as well as I do that there are offenses against us all the time that we forgive. We say, all right, the person comes to us and says, I'm sorry, and we go, okay. And we say, well, why can't God just do that? But it's because at this point, God is very different than us. You see, when... When, when someone offends you or someone offends me and they come to me and they say they're sorry, while I may not have been worthy of that particular offense, I'm not completely innocent. Not only that, if someone lies to me and they come and say they're sorry, my mind begins to remember all the times I've lied. And it would be very hypocritical of me to say, oh no, you're going to pay for this. Because <laughs> then I look back in my history and think about all those lies I've told that I didn't pay for. 
I remember recently, Karen and I lived in a house next door to a lot of college students, and they were quite inconsiderate late at night because they played their music very loud. And I would get all uppity about that. And my dear sweet wife would say, remember 1972, how you used to play your music? <laughs> and I'd say, but that was different. That was real music, at least. <laughs> the neighbors should have been listening to that. I wasn't being inconsiderate. I was helping them along in their cultural progression. And so, you see, it's, it was rather difficult for me to be too uppity about that. It didn't keep me from going over and saying, could you just be quiet? But uh, I said it much nicer than I would have otherwise. Because, again, but you see, God isn't like that. God is never offended. There's nothing in God that needs to be apologized for. And he's perfectly just. And so you see, our offenses against him as the standard maker for all time, for everyone, for everything, are that great and that big. And it's a sin not against an offending one, but a sin against a perfect one. And so he responds in perfect justice. You say, well then, is there no hope for us? Is there no hope at all in the sense that we've all offended God in various kinds of ways? In fact, in fact our offense against God does indeed affect even our relationships with each other. Because you see, the reason I offend God is because I want his job. I want to be God. I want to be the one that sets the standard for me and for everybody else. And so what happens then, since you want to be God and set the standards for you and everybody else, and I want to be God and set the standards for me and everybody else, we keep offending each other. Because you keep setting standards I don't want to meet. And I keep setting standards you don't want to meet. And so we keep offending. It affects everything, this attitude. And you say, well, there, is there any forgiveness for that? Is there any way at all that God can, can set those aside and not remember them giving his justice and his holiness and my sin and all of that? And of course the answer is yes. In fact, as we read through the scripture, we see the whole history of that unfolding. That's the blessing of this book of Hebrews. And I won't go into detail again this week. We've talked about it before. We'll have to talk about it. We'll get to talk about it again in chapters 9 and 10. But as we read through the Old Testament, we see that's the whole point of this system of sacrifice. God is saying, I'm holy. If you sinned against me, you must die. But because I'm gracious as well, and because I'm loving and caring and kind, I'll take the life of a substitute for your life. And all that was to, to foreshadow, all that was to point to the very one who would come and give his life, the Lord Jesus. And in giving his life, he took our sin and its penalty. And he satisfied the justice of God for all who would believe in him. That God might then Forgive and set aside and cover and cast away and not remember our sins anymore. You see, the ground, the foundation of this forgiveness of sins is in Jesus and his cross. Now that's just to set up the question, and that is, so what? 
I mean, what's the implications of that uh, for those of us uh, who believe? You know, why is that significant? To think about the very fact that God remembers our sins no more. Well, the Bible uses a lot of expressions about forgiveness. Um, and one of the Psalms says that when he forgives, he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. Just ponder that a while. It'll just twist your mind all up. And you go, how far is that really? Well, it's pretty far, and then some. But that's the point. Another psalm says he'll blot out our transgressions. Another one, Isaiah, says he'll put them behind his back. Meaning he can't, can't really see them. They're just behind his back. Uh, Prophet Micah says he's going to cast them into the depths of the sea. Here, Jeremiah simply says, he'll remember them no more. Now, it's important to understand that not remembering is different than forgetting. Right? Not remembering is different than forgetting. Um, God is omniscient. You see, forgetting is a problem. Forgetting is kind of a passive thing anyway. Forgetting happens uh, when we... Somebody once told me there were two reasons for forgetting. One is old age, and I can't remember the other. But... um, But forgetting is a passive thing. Not remembering is an active thing. It's a choice. It's a decision. It says, no, I'm not going to remember those in the sense that I'm not going to act upon them as they deserve. In fact, the Bible uses this expression, remember, in a positive way about God from time to time. You can read through the Old Testament and you'll find passages like, and God remembered his covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean that he had forgotten it. And all of a sudden it just came to mind again, like when I forget a name and then finally it comes to mind. In fact, Karen and I have a little expression we use with each other. We call it deja vu dementia. And that is, we, we realize we've forgotten that before. You know? <laughs> We're back there again. I, I think I've forgotten this before. Um, and God isn't like that. You see, He doesn't forget, forget. And so, how do you express it? He says, I'm not going to remember it. Because in a positive way, when he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he acts then. He does something in accordance with that covenant. And so, when he doesn't remember, it means he chooses not to act. And when God knows of our sin, he doesn't act according to what it deserves. He sets it aside. At least three times over the last 16 and a half years, I've told my favorite forgiveness story. I'm going to tell it again uh, in hopes that you're forgetful. This may jar something. I love this story. It's the best one I've ever heard in my life. I heard it 20 years ago, sitting actually in a Roman Catholic church. It was told by a priest. He was telling a story. He had the publication, and I wish I would have gotten it because I don't have any documentation on this. But he told the story about a young boy in South America who came to his mother one day and said that he had received a visitation from Jesus. And his mother was a bit happy about that, but concerned about that, wondering, is my son just simply delusional? And so he, she went to her local priest and asked the priest to come and intervene and interview the boy. And the boy met with the priest, and the priest had a number of questions about this. And at the end of their session together, the priest asked the little boy, he said, listen, 
if Jesus ever comes back and talks to you, I want you to ask him something. And so the little boy said, all right, I'll ask him. What do you want me to ask him? And the priest said, I want you to ask him what I confessed in my last confession. The priest realizing there was only one other person who would know that confession in the Catholic tradition. He probably confessed it perhaps to another priest. And so he knew that person knew it, but that was it. So how would this little boy know what he confessed in his last confession? Jesus would know because he had confessed it in his presence. So some months passed, and the boy came to his mother again, and said, Jesus showed up again, so she called the priest. The priest goes back, interviews the boy, talks a while, and says, oh, by the way, remember before I left last time, I asked you to ask Jesus something. And then he said, do you remember? And the little boy said, yes, you asked me to ask him what you confessed in your last confession. And uh, he said, well, did you ask him? He said, yes, I did. He said, what did Jesus say? He said, Jesus said he couldn't remember. Ah, that's the very point, you see. He doesn't remember anymore. He's not going to act upon those sins as our sins deserve. Yeah, what then are the implications of Jesus not remembering, God not remembering our sins any, anymore? I think this first we realize that our guilt before him is removed. It's gone. The price has been paid. There's, there's no guilt any longer before God. And therefore, uh, I can enter into his presence with a clear conscience. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, the apostle says, If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before the Father and we receive from him all that we ask. And I think, you know, that really is true. When we have no uh, guilt, we have confidence to be able to enter into his presence. How else could we enter into the presence of God without a sense that our sins were going to be remembered no more? If, if you're in a relationship with a person, and, and this has occurred to all of us, it certainly have occurred, has occurred to me. Uh, in fact, in ministry it happens, uh, one of my rules of thumb, and I don't always follow it, much to my detriment, but one of my rules of thumb is if there's ever a, a, a relational problem with a person, to take care of it as quickly as possible, if I know of it. Because in my situation, I may be called in to help them die. And, and if I haven't dealt with this relational problem between the two of us, and I walk in, I feel like, you know, we've got to talk about this other thing, but it seems so petty compared to this, but, but yet... I don't have a lot of confidence in being with you at the moment. So, so I try to take care of those things. And I think of that in my relationship with God as well. But when I know that my sins have been forgiven, when I know that he remembers them no more, when I know that if I ask him what I confessed in my last confession, he looks at me with a blank stare. And then I have confidence before him. The second implication is this that it makes us to be merciful people. You know the parable of Jesus. I won't read it all. In Matthew chapter 18, he's asked, Jesus is by his disciples, how many times should we forgive? And so Jesus, uh, as he does, uh, turns that question into a more universal one and gives them the applicable answer in every situation because he nails us right at the heart. And you remember the story, I suspect it's, it's a story that Jesus tells. He says there's a, a man who owes another an unpayable amount of money. We might think of it in terms of billions of dollars. 
but simply an unpayable amount. The man could save every penny he earned for ten lifetimes, and he still wouldn't be able to pay the debt. And he goes to the man to whom he owes the debt, and he pleads with him, and he says, please, I'll pay you on Monday, kind of thing, kind of a crazy deal. But he, but he says, just give me some more time. And the man says, no, I'll simply forgive you. I'll forgive the debt. And he forgives the debt, and this man has been freed from debtor's prison and, and any other consequence of this, of this debt that he owes. And then that very same man who's been forgiven, that great debt, goes and finds a man who owes him perhaps not an insignificant amount, but certainly a payable amount, and certainly a very small amount compared to what he owed. He owed billions. This man owes him a few hundred dollars, maybe even a few thousand, but, but nothing in comparison. And he takes that man who owes him just a little in comparison, and he begins to wring his neck in a sense, and he says, pay me what you owe, or I'm throwing you into prison. And you can just feel the anger of the crowd listening to Jesus tell the story, as it should be for us as well. How can he do such a thing? And of course, the point of Jesus is, if you've been forgiven, how can you not forgive? I mean, if God has forgiven you the billions, if you will, that you owe him, how could you not forgive that offense of that one person against you or those few people against you or even a lot of people against you, even a large offense? When you've been forgiven as you have been forgiven and it makes us, you see, merciful people. At least it should, it should make us humble people to realize that God remembers our sin no more. When we think about the, 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 the enormity of our sin and the holiness of God and how we've offended him and the consequences of that, that, that life is taken and he restores life by remembering our sins no more, it should make us very humble. How can we be judgmental against others? At that point. Oh, that isn't to say that we agree with everyone, and that isn't to say that we're tolerant of everyone else's ideas, because not every idea is worth the same as another idea. Not every idea is true. But it should humble us to think that left on our own, the best we can do is to be condemned by God. And the only reason we're not is because of Jesus. That tempers everything. And then, as I mentioned at the offering time, this should result in tremendous love towards God. Turn to Luke chapter 7. I've got to read this one. Luke chapter 7. Jesus, verse uh, 36. Uh, Jesus uh, comes to a Pharisee's home for dinner. A Pharisee named Simon. The Pharisees, uh, by New Testament times, uh, were... Uh, people who believed themselves to be very righteous, uh, so righteous that they didn't need the forgiveness of God. If they needed the forgiveness of God, it was just a little bit around the edges and not anything systemic or substantial. So Luke 7, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Picture that. How startling that would have been. We don't know precisely what it means when he says she was a sinner, likely a prostitute. And here is the very Son of God. And one who responds to him in that way. 
in the midst of this dinner party of pretty important people. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. It would have been really scary to be around Jesus, don't you think? <laughs> he thought that to himself. I, I don't know people who read minds, except for my wife. And uh, it's just scary. And he answered, say it, teacher, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii was a, a, a day's wage. So we're looking at not quite two years' salary. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. So two years' salary versus a couple of months. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And again, when he says, for she loved much, that doesn't mean they were forgiven because she loved much. It says, because she loved much, that's evidence of the fact that she knows she's been forgiven much. Because he goes on to say this, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began among them to say among themselves, who is this who ever forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, we come to grips with how much we've been forgiven. What we should see in us is great love. It's always interesting to me when folks come to preach here knowing that we're a bit of an academic community, and knowing how I preach and all that, they say, how complicated do sermons need to be for this crowd? You know, they've been taught for all these years, and they have Bible studies and all this kind of thing going on. And I always smile, and I simply say, just tell them about Jesus. Because you see, the more we know, the more we know how much we've been forgiven. And the more we know how much we've been forgiven, the more we love. And the more we love, the more we love to hear about how much we've been forgiven. You see, that's a, it's, it's a sign of maturity. Not that we know all the details of Scripture. Not because we know all the theological points. All of those are important to get to hear. But you see, we get to hear, and what we want to hear is about the cross. So I said, just talk to them about Jesus. Just tell them the gospel. And they'll leave thinking you're the best preacher in all the world. If you leave that out, they won't pay any attention to you at all. No matter how good your stories are, no matter how complicated your, your message is, no matter how detailed your theology, if you don't get there, it matters not. But you see, as people who know we've been forgiven, we find ourselves loving more. And then we have a deep sense of assurance. Because you see, we know that the transaction has taken place. We know that our guilt is gone. We know that he's not going to remember our sins anymore. We know that when we get to glory and we meet him and we begin to make a list of our sins, he's going to scratch his head and says, I don't have any of that here. And thus, as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 and verse 
14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, we're all slaves to this fear of death because we know the very truth of Hebrews 9 that says, it's what I call the Billy Graham verse because he always quotes it, for it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We know that inherently, intuitively, no matter how atheistic we may think ourselves to be, there's something within our guts that knows when we die we meet God and there's judgment and that creates a fear. And the way that we deal with that fear is to create sometimes systems that help us Deny it. Elaborate systems to help us deny it. But as believers, we don't have to deny it. We can say, it's true. We die then the judgment. But of that judgment, I'm judged forgiven. I'm judged righteous in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The death of sin, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, all these things should be erupting in our lives as we know that God remembers that our sins, He remembers our sins no more. The other night on Wednesday night, as Rick was teaching, he was saying, We need as believers to embody the gospel. If we're going to share the gospel with other people, we need to live it. We need to embody it. And I would say, in this context, what that means is we need to live like people who know they have no guilt before God. We need to live like people who know they've been forgiven and therefore forgive. We need to live like people who know they've been forgiven and therefore live in humility. We need to live like people who know they've been forgiven much and therefore love God much. And we need to live with this sense of assurance. Now very quickly, what doesn't this mean? What doesn't it mean that he remembers our sins no more? Just a couple of things just to round this out. Uh, Number one, it doesn't mean we need no longer confess our sins. There's a teaching that comes in and out, if you read the things I read, uh, that says that Christians really needn't ask God ever for forgiveness because their sins have been forgiven. Uh, And if Romans 8.1 says, Now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then why ever, after you've been forgiven, should you ask for forgiveness? Well, the answer, the short answer to that question is because when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray, forgive us our sins. Now, if you want to be logical about it and kind of connect the dots, it's like this. That when we've been forgiven unto salvation, we understand that to be God as judge. And as our judge, when we come to him in repentance and faith in Jesus, he remembers our sins in a legal way no more. He doesn't hold them against us. But then we enter into this relationship with him where he's no longer judge but father. And as our father, if we offend him, how could we not acknowledge that? You know, when when I sin against my wife, when I offend her in various ways, I still, at least should, if my pride doesn't get the best of me, I still should ask her to forgive me. When I 
when I offend her in various ways, it doesn't mean I stop being her husband. If that were the case, we'd have been married and remarried four or six million times in the last 32 years, I suppose. But it means that I still go to her because I care for her and I care for that relationship and so I acknowledge my sin. I don't apologize. Let me be technical with you just a moment. To make an apology means to make a defense. When you apologize, you defend. That's what an apologist is. You confess. Confession is different than apologizing. Now I know that I'm the only nerd that makes that distinction. But, but just to understand what happens when we confess our sins, the word confess in Greek means to say the same thing. That is to agree with. And so when you confess your sin, you're agreeing with your accuser that your accuser is right, that you are wrong. That's what it means to confess. To apologize means to come and say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to do that. That may be true, but it's likely to be a lie. Then you have two things. Another thing to confess pretty quickly. It's lying to you. Well, that I really meant to do it. But I feel really bad about having meant to do it, so I want to apologize and say, I really didn't mean to do that. Uh, let me make a defense. Let me tell you why you deserved me to be so mean to you. We do that from time to time as well. No, to confess means to say the same thing after. To agree with your accuser and say, no, you're right. And when we've offended God, which we do, after we've been forgiven by God the judge, and we offend God our Father, and how can we just sort of blow that off and not acknowledge it and not say, God, I'm sorry? So in the one sense, we needn't. We don't get kicked out of the family when we sin. We've been forgiven by this one who is the judge. But if we're going to be, have confidence before our Father, we need to have a clear conscience. That's why as we come together to worship on Sunday mornings, and this is a hard thing to do, corporate confession is a hard thing to do. When we all come together, it feels mechanical, it feels forced, it feels all of those things. But still it's important to do. Because if we're really going to come and authentically worship God together, we have to acknowledge that sometime between our last confession and this moment in time when we're worshiping Him, we've sinned against Him. I know many of you fight with your spouses on the way to church or your children. That's why I come at five. When I leave my house, everyone's asleep. I can honestly say I fought with no one. I just get here. It's great. My conscience is clear. I lock my door. I see no one. So it's great. Um, you, on the other hand, I used to be you, so I used to you know, know before I became a professional Christian. I used to know what that was like. <laughs> Of, of arguing on the way to church and fighting with the children about what they're going to wear and all those kinds of things. Uh, so I know you've sinned before you've gotten here. And it's good to cleanse that. To agree with God. He's right. I'm wrong. <sighs> Worship, you see. And acknowledge that forgiveness and love much. Nor does it mean that he remembers our sins no more, that there will not be consequences this side of glory for our sins. If you want to be convinced of that, read the life of King David. He confessed his sin and his son died. And his household was a wreck. And his kingdom came unraveled. But he was forgiven. Nor does it mean that we can just sort of not worry about how we live. Well, I'm forgiven, then what does it really matter? 
Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 6. He said, should we sin more so that grace may abound? And in a sense, if I could paraphrase his response, he'd say, that's, that's stupid. You know, no, no believing Christian, no one who's been forgiven, no one whose heart has been changed, no one who really loves God would ever think that. That just is removed from our life because, you see, when we become believers, what we're doing is we're saying, this sin is killing me. This sin is the thing that separates from me, me from God. This thing is the enemy. I want this out of my life. Not just the penalty of it, but I want, I want this sin out of my life because I realize how it offends God. And now I love Him. And therefore, why would I think that now that I've been forgiven, I can live however I want and it really doesn't matter? No, now my eyes are living in a way that would please God. And when I don't, that's what hurts. And that's what I confess. Let me simply end how I began this morning with Psalm 32. David writes this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And he ends his psalm by saying, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy. All you who are upright in heart, let's pray. Father in heaven, it's amazing that you would be so gracious to us as to forgive our sins, not in some light, overlooking, turn the other, uh, look the other way kind of way, but in the deep, substantial way of killing your own son. And I pray that all of us would know this deep forgiveness as we trust in Jesus and that we would live as those forgiven. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. If you do, I remind you of our Sunday school classes happening.